Good morning. On this sixth Sunday of Eastertide, we continue our series on stewarding our resources and exploring our own money stories. Today, we are called to a process of reimagining. So let us open our minds and our hearts to how our interpretations of this familiar story might be reimagined today. As Jesus taught, he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and to have the best seats in the synagogues and places of honors at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for the sake of appearances say long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. He sat down opposite the treasury and watched the crowd putting money into the treasury. Many rich people put in large sums. A poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which are worth a penny. Then Jesus called his disciples and said to them, truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all the, those who are contributing to the treasury. For all of them have contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. the good news of Jesus Christ. Will you pray with me? God of Jubilee, upend my internal narratives about my worth my security. Gather me into your holy imagination of what is possible. Invite me into a new way of being. Amen. Our story begins by the temple, a bustling place filled with religious and economic activity, the center of the town, center of Jewish life. We hear Jesus commenting on the members of the community who seem to be incredibly preoccupied with status and wealth, exploiting the poor but making public shows of piety. This moment sets up his next observation. You can sort of imagine this whole scene almost like an anthropologist doing a voiceover for a documentary. Look, over there are the scribes. They say these really long prayers, but at the same time, they are taking money from the poor. Look, and over there you can see the scholars who want to make sure that everybody knows how pious they are, but I don't think that they've made good on their pledge this year. And then over here, look, an impoverished widow just donated what little money she had left to the temple treasury. And he continues the observation that the wealthy who contributed in fact, gave a smaller percentage of their money they gave out of their discretionary budgets than the widow who gave her entire operating budget. Now, traditionally, the theological nugget that we glean from this story is praise for the widow's stark act of generosity, with the reminder that no gift is too small and a not-so-subtle glance over to the offering plates an implied go and do likewise. And yet, that's not what Jesus said. 
Jesus didn't use that as a teaching moment to instruct his followers to go and do likewise, which realizing that was somewhat curious to me, given that when it comes to money, Jesus doesn't deal in subtext. He's pretty plain spoken. So what if that's not the point of this story? Our stewardship curriculum explores a reimagined interpretation of this story, where Jesus could, in fact, be pointing out the widow's donation as a sign that their economic system was broken. Up until the destruction of the temple in the year 70, so about an entire lifetime after Jesus, the temple treasury was the system by which Jewish people fulfilled the requirement of the Torah to financially support the poor and dispossessed, such as orphans and widows. While those who lived relatively comfortably were required to donate, because this was the social safety net meant for their, meant for, excuse me, while those who lived relatively comfortably were required by Jewish law to pay into the treasury, the poor were neither expected nor required to donate because this was the social safety net meant for their benefit. It's in this context that Jesus points out the widow giving all she had, two coins that amounted to barely a penny. The system that was supposed to support her has failed. She still has barely two coins to rub together. And even that, she pays into the treasury, which is supposed to be a means of financial support for her. So yes, we could praise her generous spirit. After all, if billionaires gave in the same way the widow did, well, there wouldn't be any billionaires left, and we'd probably have much less poverty in the world. However, we would be willfully ignoring one of Jesus's most emphasized themes in his ministry if we did not lament the brokenness of the economic system that was set up to prevent this very moment from having taken place. If we did not condemn any institution that would accept the donation of the entire livelihood of someone who the institution was supposed to be taken care of, taken care of. And we remember that in every condemnation of a broken system, there is an invitation to reimagine what could be, and even an invitation to dream it into reality. In this story, Jesus invites us to reimagine not only how we share and distribute our resources, but it invites us to reimagine the stories we carry about the best ways to do that. Economist Thomas Piketty, author of Capital and Ideology, points out that our economy is shaped by our ideologies. They always have been points out that the existence of inequality is ultimately a choice that has been structured into our economic systems rather than an isolated inevitability that's destined to emerge in any economic system that we could dream up. His takeaway? It doesn't have to be like this. Our economy doesn't have to be like this. And so Jesus says to us, our relationship to money doesn't have to be like this. And it wasn't always like this. 
Turning to the Torah, God's teachings passed down through Moses and codified into religious law by the early Jewish people, we learn of a practice of redistribution known as Jubilee. In a similar Sabbath rhythm to every seventh day being a, a day of rest, every seventh year letting the land rest and reset, the Jubilee year happened after seven cycles of those seven years. So in the 50th year, the Jubilee year, slaves are freed, prisoners are released, debts are forgiven, and accumulated wealth and property is redistributed. Now to put Jubilee into context, imagine if every 50 years, our endowment was completely drained for direct distribution to the poor and to fund a new chapter of community ministry. So instead of our 50th anniversary celebration, we have a 50th anniversary redistribution, draining the entire endowment, like starting from scratch draining. Can you imagine the impact that that might have on a community? Not just in terms of the practical changes that those funds could enact, but also the sense of interdependence that would develop, where the church's ministry would be completely and entirely dependent on its current community, the members that pledge, the groups that use the building, the time and skills that are shared to build God's kingdom. Now, I suspect what would emerge would be some anxiety and a deep, undeniable realization that we need each other. Maybe that's what God intended with Jubilee. This practice of Jubilee fosters an ideology in which money is used to restore, to reconcile, to repair community, instead of bolstering personal in independence or providing security and sustainability to institutions. It's fitting, perhaps, that immediately after this exchange with his disciples about the widow, Jesus leaves the temple, and a disciple remarks in awe at the physical splendor of the temple building and its grounds, which Jesus swiftly but calmly reminds him will eventually crumble. Jesus continually reminds us that everything mortal or mortal made has a finite lifespan. Each of us creatures on earth and all of the institutions we could ever create will eventually and should eventually die. What is everlasting is our covenant with God and the values of compassion, justice, and peace that these communities and institutions strive to embody. Now what's interesting to me is that when we begin to reimagine our money stories and reimagine our economies, we often meet a lot of resistance. Well, Jubilee was never a real practice, some say. It was aspirational. Or if you mention the communal economy described in the Book of Acts, you might often hear, well, that's a utopian ideal, but it's unrealistic in today's world. And as an aside, a somewhat snarky aside, 
I sometimes find it ironic that the very voices that decry socialism or communism as somehow inherently evil often describe their concept of heaven or the kingdom of God in terms that would make Marx proud. Go figure. But in fact, Jubilee is a real practice. It might not be happening everywhere. It might not be written into our system of government, but it's happening. You know, a couple months ago, a Moravian church in North Carolina made the news for its own experiment with Jubilee. They raised $15,000. $15,000 is less than one week's worth of our operating budget, to put that into context. That was enough to purchase $3,300,000 worth of medical debt, which they then forgave, no strings attached. Talk about immediate, direct impact. Can you imagine what it would be like to do that? To get a chance to forgive someone's medical debt or their student loan debt? I know many of us, myself included, have likely been in a position at some point in our lives when we were just one medical emergency or ER visit away from not being able to afford housing. So imagine getting to call someone to let them know that their debt has been forgiven, that that is the power of God's love in the world. So why does that kind of love get such pushback sometimes? Why the resistance to our reimagination? You know, dreaming is powerful, it's potent, it's dangerous. Just ask Joseph and his Technicolor dream coat, or the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Just ask Mary, mother of Jesus, or her husband Joseph, fleeing persecution after they delivered Christ into the world, just as the angels had foretold in their dreams. If we are free to accept God's invitation to dream of the kingdom on earth as it is in heaven, if we begin to reimagine what, what we've been taught about money, and we begin to reimagine how money can work in community, we might just conclude that it doesn't have to be like this. We might just conclude that having enough is abundance. And wow, would that upend everything. That would upend everything. Honestly, the market might crash. The practice of jubilee, of Sabbath rest, and restoration through redistribution resists the values of efficiency and productivity. What I mean by that is that so much of our world focuses on growth for growth's sake, on being as efficient as possible, on being as productive as possible, so much so that even when corporations or other institutions talk about the importance of rest or days off, they often throw in the tagline, well, it will make you more productive when you come back. But when we live into a rhythm of labor and rest, that culminates in all of our accumulation being redistributed, the slate of debts being wiped clean, 
suddenly efficiency and productivity don't seem so crucial. You can't take it with you, so take only what you need. God doesn't want us haggard and exhausted, having reaped every last grain of the harvest. We take what we need, and we leave a portion to be gleaned by the wider community. That's what God commands. <laughs>